podcast is a production of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. It is made possible by grant funding from the Academy of Teaching Scholars at the University of Oklahoma. The views expressed in this podcast are based on the participants' research, but at times may represent their expert opinion only. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest today is Dr. Andy Wagner. Dr. Wagner is a board-certified OBGYN and geneticist and an associate professor here in the Department of OBGYN at the University of Oklahoma. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Wagner. Very happy to be here. Dr. Wagner, today I'd like to give our listeners a nice overview of prenatal genetics. Specifically, what are the key components that a general OBGYN should understand and be able to communicate with their patients in regards to uh, prenatal screening for genetic conditions and other testing that we can offer now? I know you have a vast amount of experience and knowledge in this area, so I'm excited to hear from you today. Well, thank you. Um, we've had many various screens and tests available over the years, and OBGYN has been one of the first specialties in medicine to identify that genetics is something of importance and has valued the importance for screening because these are what families are going to want to know in regards to the babies that they're having. Awesome. Okay, first I'd like to take a broad view of things. What do you think are the important elements when talking to a patient about prenatal genetic screening? I think the most important thing, first of all, is the difference between a screen and a test. So screens and examples of those would be the first trimester screen, the quad screen, non-invasive prenatal testing, otherwise known as cell-free fetal DNA. These don't say yes or no if a baby's going to have a particular condition. Primarily, they were designed to say if a baby were to have an increased risk for Down syndrome or open neural tube defects or other chromosomal abnormalities, and the results will give us that information if someone's at an increased risk. Not a yes or no answer. Typically, it's in number form, 1 out of 5,000, 1 out of 30. And then there are tests like chorionic villus sampling or amniocentesis that will give us that exact yes or no answer because we'll get a chromosomal karyotype, we'll get a specific gene test, and those give us that 100% answer to the question, is baby going to have that condition? Okay, great. So I think that's really important, talking about screening versus diagnostic test and making sure your patients understand what these tests really do. So, um, okay, can you tell us what are the most important tests we should have knowledge about when it comes to prenatal genetic screening? So the core screens are done in the first and second trimester. So in explaining these, I'll go chronologically in terms of how they were developed as opposed to first and second trimester. So the first one that was developed is now our quad screen or quadruple screen or multiple marker screen. Initially, it was just a single screen of alpha-fetoprotein. Then it turned into a triple screen, and now pretty much everybody is doing a quad screen. That is done typically between 15 weeks and the end of the 21st week and uses two pieces of information where the first part is maternal information, her age, her weight, her gestational age. There are some calculation factors for race or diabetic status. And then the serum markers measuring for uh, proteins from the placenta and baby um, that end up in the serum. And then depending on those values, it gives a risk assessment and detects about 80% of fetuses with Down syndrome, about 90% with open neural tube defects, and somewhere around 70% with trisomy 18. That had been developed in the 80s and expanded to the late 
90s, early 2000s, and then in the late 90s, early 2000s, screening in the first trimester um, came about, and that's your first trimester screen, and that uses three pieces of information, the same maternal information I said before, looks at two proteins in the maternal serum, and then an ultrasound measurement of a fluid collection at the back of the neck we call the nuchal translucency. That one finds a, somewhere between 87 to 90 percent of fetuses with Down syndrome. And for both of these results are available about a week and a half to two weeks after. The first trimester screen, if I didn't already mention, is done between 11 weeks and the end of the 13th week. And then you can integrate the two parts together so you do the nuchal translucency measurement, the first trimester serum draw, and then the family and the physician are blinded to the results, come back in the second trimester, do additional blood work, and then you get a result where it integrates the two parts together, finding about 95% of fetuses with Down syndrome. And some families like to choose that option. Now tell me... Um Two things about the integrated screen that I think get a little bit confusing. Number one, why the blinded result? And number two, why integrated versus first trimester screen? What Talk about the advantages there and, and some of the details, because I think those get confusing for some of us. Sure. So some families want to get as high detection rate as possible, choose that 95 over... 87%, and for them it doesn't matter when they get the results, so from the point when you start the integrated screen to when you get the results, it may take a month and a half, and for families where finding it out, finding out the results early won't change any decisions about the pregnancy or won't change any testing options that they may avail themselves of, finding out that 95% month and a half later is completely acceptable. Um, for some families, they don't want to wait that long. So there actually is a version that's in between where you don't have to be blinded. It's called the sequential screen, which basically means you get you do the first trimester screen like I already explained. You get those results, both the physician and um, the patient. And depending on those results, they can choose how to proceed with the second trimester. So if it shows a lower risk, they often go on to the second trimester blood draw to then integrate the results later and get that 95% detection rate. If it shows a higher risk, then the family could stop at that point and choose either a more advanced screening option, non-invasive prenatal testing, or choose prenatal diagnosis in the form of coronic villus sampling or amniocentesis. Okay, so the difference between the sequential and the integrated screen really is the blinded portion. Correct. And so what you're talking to patients about, I gather, is when they want to know the information and how much do they want to know early on. Is the 95% or the 90% acceptable to them? Is the waiting a month and a half versus a week and a half acceptable to them? Fantastic. Okay. Um before we move away from the first trimester screen and the integrated screen, um, you mentioned nuchal translucency. Yes. Tell me about what, if I'm in an office where we don't have access to specialized ultrasound, what does the nuchal translucency add in addition to the blood work? How do you get that done as far as certification and does it help with anything else um, besides what the first trimester screen is, is looking for? Great question. So it is an integral part of the first trimester screening calculation. Um, it's what brings it up to the approximate 90 
percent. Without it, just the sear markers in the first trimester find about 60 percent. So you really wouldn't use it just with the serum in the first trimester. Um, Nucleotranslucency by itself, it looks when when the measurement is bigger, it is a marker. It's not an anomaly per se. So if it is larger, and we say larger, it's measurement greater than 3.5 millimeters, and yes, it takes special certification um, to be able to offer that and bill for that and have the labs run your screens. Um, when it is an increased measurement, it finds up to about 70% of babies with Down syndrome. So it can assist, but not always. So if you have a bigger measurement, majority of the time, baby's going to be completely chromosomally normal. Next most common thing is aneuploidy, whether it's Down syndrome or trisomy 18 or 13 or Turner syndrome, for example. Next most common thing is congenital heart defects, so sometimes that's with or without a chromosomal abnormality. And then there's a huge list of other things, but what's in fourth place through 20th place are much rarer. So you really wouldn't use it completely on its own, but for some families it can give them some additional reassurance. As for the certification, really anybody could get it. The certification process is available online through, through, through two different organizations, and basically you have to send in so many images of what is essentially the perfect measurement or the perfect view on ultrasound and they critique those measurements after you've done an online course and once um, the certification body feel that you are successfully getting measurements then you get that certification and you're also tracked to make sure that you are staying consistent with that with these measurements okay so it sounds like nuchal translucency um not only is probably most valuable in addition to the, the serum testing, but could also heighten your awareness for some other things going on when it's abnormal. Correct. And then, okay, so if, so let's say I don't have access to a nurgle translucency measurement. If I want to do serum testing alone, what's the best way to test a low-risk population? So if you're starting in the first trimester, you can do another version of what we've already discussed is something called a serum integrated screen, which is your first trimester blood draw, your second trimester blood draw, put those together, and it finds about 88% of babies with Down syndrome. So that's something that can be available if someone comes in and wants to start the screening process in the first trimester, but the nuchal translucency measurement is not available due to certification or distance and traveling or many other reasons. Otherwise, you have your traditional second trimester quad screen as an option. Fantastic. In addition to what's growing with the non-invasive prenatal testing options. Awesome, which is a great segue. So non-invasive prenatal testing, tell us what it is, what it is supposed to be used for, how it's actually used, and, and what do we do with it? <laughs> so, first of all, nobody really agrees on what we should be calling it, whether it's cell-free DNA testing or non-invasive prenatal testing or NIPT or non-invasive prenatal screening, because technically it still is a screen because it doesn't give a 100% answer. But basically what it does through maternal blood is they look at little bitty broken up pieces of DNA that are free floating around in the bloodstream and they're at a size in which the lab can figure out what chromosomes they originally came from. The, these pieces of DNA in the bloodstream 
past 10 weeks gestation are at least or approximately 10% of those are placental or fetal in origin. Majority is from the placenta. The rest are maternal in origin. So the labs find these cell-free DNA, so they're not in the cells like the rest of our chromosomes, the rest of our DNA are, and through very complicated bioinformatics, figure out what chromosomes all the pieces belong to, and different labs use different approaches and compare to different things. But basically, they're looking for an excess of chromosomal information that go along with the main aneuploidies that we already are talking about such as Down syndrome or trisomy 21, trisomy 18, or 13, and they look for a relative increase that would otherwise have no reason being there except from coming, except for coming from the fetus. Um, and then the labs have done some other advances in terms of looking at the sex chromosomes to see if there are extra or missing sex chromosomes, such as in Turner syndrome or Klinefelter syndrome, meaning also gender identification is a possibility. And so... The initial studies were primarily looking at the high-risk population because that's where we're already looking um, for to see if it, someone was at increased risk. Granted, since 2007, American College of OBGYN has said that everybody um, should be offered all screens and tests to um, see if they are at increased risk for aneuploidy. So this one was kind of the next next step. But the high-risk group that was initially looked at and had the initial recommendation in terms of who should be offered this screen were women of advanced maternal age, meaning they're going to be 35 or older at the time of delivery, previous fetus or previous baby with a trisomy, or one of the parents is a carrier for a Robertsonian translocation. Those were th those are three things that you would already know before they're pregnant. And then two other elements that were brought people into the high-risk category were things that you would find out during pregnancy, such as increased risk on one of the screens we've already discussed, or something abnormal on ultrasound. So the screens were, or non-invasive prenatal testing were designed to look for that population. But then the thought was, well, why should a woman who's 37's blood be any different than a woman who's 27 in her first pregnancy with none of those risk factors? Really, there shouldn't be. The only main difference is the 37-year-old is already at a higher risk for Down syndrome just based on age compared to a population of 27-year-olds. But everything else should be the same. And so the labs did various studies to see if everything would work out the same and primarily it does work out the same. The main difference is in what we're calling the positive predictive value. How often will there actually be a baby with Down syndrome when the screen says there's a higher risk? And so because the lower risk population has a lower incidence, you're going to pick up, you'll have a lower positive predictive value. This gets very complicated with statistics, and I know you do a way better job than I do on that. Um, so let's uh, let me interrupt you real quick. So the sensitivity of cell-free DNA, ninety-nine overall, plus percent for right. both the high-risk, lower-risk population. Fantastic. Okay, so a higher sensitivity, um, but when you're applying it to a lower-risk population, you're going to have a few more false positives, a Correct. few more moms who have an abnormal screen but a normal baby, so they're stressed out for little to no reason. Okay. Fantastic. So, back to your point of it gets complicated, but you probably can apply this to all women. 
should you apply it to all women? <laughs> that is a philosophical debate, and I think it depends on how conservative you're being. Um, the labs are obviously going to want you to screen everybody because you send those tests to the labs, and all of these tests were derived and developed by private labs as opposed to what traditionally been done as research projects in various university research labs. Um, so how much is marketing? How much is patient responsibility? It is a lot of both, but primarily patient responsibility. So I think if you can explain the complicated statistics just like explaining these complicated genetic concepts and screens to people, and which is why I teach our residents how to give out these answers and explain these options. If you can do that in a satisfactory way where they understand that there could be a false positive and she still understands that this is an option for her and she feels comfortable with uh, this screening option, then you could offer this. Fantastic. And if I understand what you said correctly before, if you have an abnormal first trimester screen, integrated screen, sequential screen, or a quad screen, you can use this cell-free DNA test as a follow-up, more sensitive test instead of going to amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling, correct? That is correct, but the gold standard still is CVS or amnio. It gives you an option if patients refuse those interventions. Correct, because prior to that, you would not have any information otherwise if they refused to or declined the prenatal testing options. Okay. Now tell me, what does a patient do? Obviously, they have normal testing results. You call them, the tests are normal, they're reassured. Tell us a little bit about abnormal test results. Um, what do they do when they get the results? Um, what do you offer them? You know, uh, if I get those results in my office, just a little brief overview about management of abnormal results. I think part... I think the most important thing you need to do is not give too much information so that she gets completely freaked out, but then also not give minimal information so she's left needing to Google everything and then could be in a world of misinformation. I think a strategy needs to be developed in the office, whether it's a, a nurse that reports these results or whether... When you get an abnormal one, well, that's the one that the provider is going to um, call in um, every time. And explaining the results is crucial, and that's why I teach the counsel this sort of counseling to our residents. Even though they see me doing a half-hour-long session, there's no way you're going to be able to be on the phone with somebody for a half an hour. So figuring out a way to give a two-minute explanation of how these screening results are not a yes or no answer, um, what the next steps are, who they're getting referred to, what will probably happen in that office, making it a seamless transition um, so that this transition happens the best and because they're still looking to their main obstetric provider as as a person giving this information, as the person that's getting them to the next step. 
That makes sense. So, yeah, I think what you said was really important. The pre-test counseling of, if this is abnormal, you're going to hear from me, and this is what I'm going to do for you, probably makes all the difference in the world. Um, Okay, in the last one or two minutes, can you give us a quick overview of some other tests that we might see offered to our patients, or... um, the reps might contest, contact us about like the council prep test and other things. Sure. So these the council test is one of a number of what are called multiplex carrier panels, and they look to see if someone could be a carrier or heterozygous for a number of different autosomal recessive conditions. So we're viewing there with autosomal recessive. Both parents need to be carriers, and both need to pass it on in order for a child to have one of these conditions, such as cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, many different things. And so with further advances in technology, which are making testing or screening for many things with one small sample of blood easier, faster, and cheaper, they've developed these screens where you can look for maybe 250 different common mutations spanning 100 to 150 different disorders of varying prevalence within uh, certain communities or certain populations in the United States looking to see if somebody is a carrier. And if you find one of these things, then you could screen the partner to see if he's a carrier. There's no reason you couldn't start with him and then screen uh, the female partner later, but if this is for an OBGYN audience, you're typically going to start with the woman first. These can be done in a preconception period. That would be, in many senses, optimal because if they're contemplating pregnancy, and you find out that she's a carrier for something, and then he find out he's a carrier for the same thing, then they can make decisions how they would want to know this information once they get pregnant or possibly prior to pregnancy if it would make a difference in how they would achieve pregnancy, for example, through pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which I imagine could be a completely separate podcast. <laughs> yes. You may offer this if you find out one of the members of the family is adopted and you have no idea what their family history might be, and this could elucidate certain things that you would never know. Um, or perhaps if both members of the couple are related, and they, therefore they would be at a higher chance of both being carriers for the same condition. And then some groups are looking at using this when there is an abnormality or multiple abnormalities on ultrasound and you've already done some of the other testing already, well, maybe you'd be lucky and find something through these screens. Okay. Wow, lots of information, lots of options. And also, one of the things just to remember that we didn't talk about today, we also uh, recommend cystic fibrosis carrier screening, which yes. is uh, another prenatal genetic thing right. we didn't even touch on. Right. So. Most of these multiplex carrier panels have a large number of mutations devoted to cystic fibrosis. Fantastic. So, well... Um, I think that's all the time we have for today. This was really informative. Um, thank you, Dr. Wagner, for joining us on the You're podcast. Welcome. If you have any questions or like a transcript of today's podcast, please contact me at katie-smith at ouhsc.edu. That's k-a-t-i-e-s-m-i-t-h at ouhsc.edu. Thanks for joining us today. Please stay tuned for further podcasts from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma.